Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from radical remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. A radical remission is a statistically unlikely remission from cancer or another disease. This can fall into three categories. Category one is someone who heals without any conventional medicine. Category two is someone who first tries conventional medicine, but it unfortunately doesn't work. So they're forced to switch to alternative methods, which do lead to a remission. And category three is someone who uses conventional and alternative treatments at the same time in order to overcome a dire prognosis, which is anything with a less than 25% five-year survival rate. In other words, a radical remission survivor is anyone who is beating the odds. As a reminder, the Radical Remission Project is not against conventional medicine, and we fully support an integrative approach to healing. Most of all, we hope that this Stories That Heal podcast will inspire and educate you along your healing journey. Welcome to this episode of the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Today, we're so excited to introduce you to Dean Hall. And besides being an author, Dean is a highly sought after speaker. He is a two-time cancer survivor, widower, and world record setting extreme distance swimmer. He is the first person to swim the entire 187 mile length of, the or of Oregon's longest river, the Willamette River, which he did as an active cancer patient in 2014. And also Ireland's longest river, the River Shannon, 180 miles in 2017. Wow. The time spent immersed in the flow of the mighty rivers has changed Dean's life in many dynamic and miraculous ways. His Willamette River swim threw Dean into radical remission, unexpectedly healing his leukemia without chemo or radiation while easing his trauma and grief from losing his wife just 15 days before their 30th wedding anniversary. These gifts pushed Dean to make it his mission to encourage the world of swimmers to get out of man-made tanks and into the wild waterways as a form of authentic environmental protection. He believes it's impossible to swim with wild waters without falling in love with them. And like Jacques Cousteau used to say, you protect what you love. So with that, we bring you Dean Hall, and we are so thrilled to have our friend here with us today with such an incredible hmm. story to share. And what I guess we'd like you to start out with, Dean, is just to kind of briefly introduce yourself to us and maybe share a little bit about your diagnosis and um, what you feel comfortable sharing with us about that. Sure, well, first off, let me tell you that I am really excited to be here with you and with Carla. I've just been looking forward to the chance to be able to tell my story and, and share this time with both of you. A little bit about me. I'm uh, a native Oregonian. I grew up here, uh, the son of two mountain climbers, which uh, was really different for a kid in the 1960s, which tells you how old I am. Uh, I mean, to have a mom uh, 
uh, not in the kitchen, but on some of the most precarious slopes in the Cascades in the Northwest was really something unusual and I think exceptional. Uh, the other thing was uh, my parents really, really loved each other. And out of all my friends, uh, they were the only parents that I saw that were crazy about each other. All the other parents and my friends just barely tolerated each other. And so that was that was really uh, a gift, I believe, uh, in my childhood and kind of set up so much of my recovery um, from cancer and, and from grief. Uh, started, I, I had hoped as a child to be a sponsored adventurer and mountain climber because a lot of my dad's friends were, and I thought that'd be a great way to spend my life. Uh, but then soccer took over and I just, I literally became obsessed about the beautiful game and had a lot of different scholarships to play all around the world and uh, picked on a lark, like a stupid kid, uh, a small college in Kansas not knowing that I'd fall in love with a cute little Kansas farm girl and put myself in exile for love. And so I lived there uh, for 30 years and made the best of it, uh, really had developed a great life and a wonderful relationship, uh, both as a teacher and then as a therapist until she died in 2010 of brain cancer. Unexpected, there were literally no signs uh, just weeks before the diagnosis and then the after the diagnosis, they gave us literally no hope and 52 days later she was gone. So that's as briefly as I can encapsulate uh, 50 years <laughs> before she died. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's difficult. That's difficult, especially... Um as as your story will continue a bit but um that's not an easy thing especially with such a a quick um journey if you will yeah and like i told you um my parents really loved each other and so more than any other goal that was my goal i i really didn't care what i did or where i did it i just wanted to be in love and have a great family and we accomplished that and we're extremely happy for 30 years as a matter of fact we were happier than anybody I knew. Uh, we really liked each other. And so that made it fun. But one of the insidious things I didn't realize was happening is I moved into her small little rural town four miles north of the Oklahoma border, deep in what I call the heart of redneckery. And uh, I, in this small rural town, as is true of most rural towns, if your grandparents didn't grow up there, you were kind of considered an outsider. And so even though I taught there for 20 years and was a therapist for an additional 20, uh, they kind of overlapped. Um, people didn't call me by name. They called me Mary's husband. And at first I was a little put off by that, but then it just became a way of life and it was a good gig. So I didn't mind it, not knowing that as, because I got married so young, I was barely 21, uh, going on 12, as most <laughs> guys are. And uh, it being constantly referred to as Mary's husband was forming my adult identity. 
uh, without my knowing it whatsoever. And so when she died, I was at a total loss. I didn't know what to do with myself because it, people would still call me Mary's husband and it, it made me cry because I, I'd say, no, I'm not, I'm not anymore. Mm. And, and that was such a deep loss and such a deep pain that for years afterwards, I, I resisted uh, her being dead. And uh, I resisted even the thought of trying to live. And for me, I think that was a, a great part of what uh, really made the cancer aggressive the second time. So that's a great segue, Dean. What was your cancer diagnosis? What were you diagnosed with and when? Tell us just briefly about that. Yeah, my first diagnosis is, as is true of most of my stories, kind of dorky and funny, um, if you can call a cancer diagnosis such. Uh, I was going in for a knee surgery because uh, I played so much soccer, and I had one catastrophic soccer injury where uh, it literally tore all the ligaments and dislocated my knee to the point where my foot uh, was all the way back around over on my shoulder. And uh, yeah, it was excruciating pain. And they put my knee back together, but uh, this was back in the early 80s. And so they didn't want to do a total knee uh, replacement because I was so young. And at that time, knee replacements only were good for 20 or 30 years, and they didn't want to have to redo it. So I lived in pain for the next 20, 25 years, just waiting for this knee replacement. Finally, I couldn't wait any longer. And so at 47, because knee replacements had gotten better, I was going in for a total knee replacement two days after Christmas. And so I took the pre-surgery blood work four days before Christmas, and it came back with a very aggressive uh, white blood cell count. And at first, the oncologist and my doctor said they'd never seen anything like it. It had features of both acute and chronic. And they were terrified uh, because it was going up by uh, the tens of thousands every day. Wow. And they said, if, if it doesn't change, there's really no protocol for such a thing. They only gave me about six weeks. And so, yeah, Merry Christmas. Um, you got six weeks to live. And my daughter was 14 at the time. And so I was just shattered. I was, because I, I'd never really been sick in my life. I'd always stayed in shape, uh, always eaten well. Um, I'd never even smoked cigarettes. One time I took one puff because in the sixth grade, Karma Gallucci said she'd kiss me if I did. And so I did, and then I was disappointed in both the puff and the kiss. And so I never <laughs> smoked cigarettes again. Good uh, for you. Because, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, uh, and I'd never, I'd never done drugs because by the time I got to the age where I had the ability to maybe seek them, uh, I was getting random UAs from my team. And you get one bad UA and you're off the team. Well, I wasn't going to sacrifice or chance that. And so I was kind of forced to be clean. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a shock. Me, of all people, 
uh, sick and God forbid cancer. Uh, it really showed me how much ego and pride I had had in my physical health, unbeknownst to me, because uh, I almost took it personally. Like, what? No, other people have cancer. I don't have cancer. And when uh, you so, got that diagnosis, Dean, was that before or after your wife had passed? This was in 2007, three years before she passed. Okay. Yeah. And I was really sick all of 2007. Uh, I barely worked. I remember hardly ever getting off the couch. Uh, my doctor said as bad as my CLL was at that time, that he called it mono on crack. <laughs> he said, that's how it's going to feel. Just I, I was sleeping on the average of 15 to 18 hours a day. Wow. Um, if I got up, uh, it was exhausting. I remember, you know, I um, did triathlons all in the 80s and 90s. And when you do that kind of endurance event, you have to develop this muscle in your head where you just watch your body do what you think it can't. And I knew I was in trouble when I was using that same muscle just to get up and walk 10 paces to the bathroom. <laughs> um, and then to get back up and go back to bed. Um, but then uh, right around early 2008, it turned around and all my numbers started going in the right direction. And uh, yeah, I started getting better fast. And do you have something you can contribute that to? Do you feel like you were making changes or was yeah, there I made involved? a lot of changes. I let myself sleep uh, even after I didn't need to. Uh, if they would have had ADD back in the 60s, I probably would have been heavily medicated. Um, I just have always had a lot of energy. And even as a kid, it used to drive my folks crazy because give me four or five hours of sleep, I'm fine. And I, even in my 40s, uh, one of my practices, because I was writing a weekly uh, advice column for several small papers around the U.S., I would get up at one and write till four or five and then go back to bed till eight. Um, that, that was real typical for me. Um, I just was never sleeping. I thought, it was stronger than other people. <laughs> now it, it's just so silly and cracks me up to say, but I just thought I was special. Um, yeah, how to be young and dumb as a man. Um, but uh, so I started allowing myself to sleep. I radically cleaned up my diet. Uh, I didn't do, I read that uh, cancer cells feed on sugar so I had quit drinking soda about 10 years before that, but I still loved my ice cream and my chocolate and all those other kinds of things. And so I really cleaned that up. I really started watching how many carbs I would allow when I found out that they turned to sugar quickly. And so I, I cleaned up my diet quite a bit. I didn't work so much. I worked two jobs from the time I was 14 to the time I was 42 sometimes three. Uh, I was a busy guy. Um, I cut it down to one job. And then rather than work 80 hours a week on that one job, I cut it down to about 30. And I uh, gave myself a lot more time to have fun as well. What does that look so, like? 
for Dean? Uh, back then, uh, it was golfing, or I still did a lot of biking. I didn't do any running anymore because the knees were so bad. And I would do some swimming. Yeah, mostly pool swimming because it was Kansas. And, you know, there weren't a lot of clean bodies of water to swim in. But when I could get to one, there was a man-made lake about 40 miles south in Oklahoma that I would go swim in in even crazy times during the year just for fun, just as a lark. Uh, yeah, so those were those were some of my fun times. And then just taking my wife on dates and flirting with her. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So that's what yeah. you did really for the CLL and you saw the numbers go down. What what came after that? Uh, I almost died of in July of 2008 because my immune system was still so suppressed. I got pneumonia. And in that part of Kansas, pneumonia during the summer isn't that unusual because there's so much wheat dust in the air, so many allergies, and it's so humid. And I caught pneumonia. I just couldn't shake it. And twice I woke up in the hospital not knowing how I'd gotten there. The second time, my doctor was one of my best friends, and he looked scared. And I said, Aaron, what's going on? He's like, hey, you're doing good. And I'm like, then why do you look scared? And he says, I, I'm not scared. And I said, I know you, man. And we'd been, a, he referred heavily to me, and we'd been in a lot of critical situations together. I, I knew him, and I knew him in crisis situations, and he was in crisis mode. And he's like, well, all I can tell you is you're not doing good. You might not make it. You got you to gotta fight. Like, I can do that. And so I fought. And right around August, they told me I couldn't take any more prednisone. I'd been on three or four rounds. And uh, so I just uh, started really trying to do different things that we hadn't tried before. And my wife, my wife was just grasping at straws and she found this array foot bath that's supposed to pull toxins out through your feet. And I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever, but if I die and I refuse to do what she asked me to, uh, you know, that's a bad way to go out and it'll leave her with a bad taste in her mouth. So I thought, okay, I'll do this dorky thing. And on the information, it said, if there are lung problems, it'll turn out the water will become black. And I thought, okay. And she hadn't read that. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll watch this thing. And man, within minutes, it's a 30 minute um, program. Within 30 minutes, the water was just like tar. It was thick and gooey and black. And uh, within about a week, I felt better. And all my numbers were going in the right direction. I could breathe again. I wasn't coughing so much. So I, I really attribute some of those kind of weird alternative theories and therapies uh, for bringing me out at least of uh, that crisis. And it, it really opened my mind to being more willing to try some alternative therapies that before then, there's no way I would have. Nice. Yeah, I love that you um, you really did experiment. I know the foot bath that you refer to, and it is very interesting. And what's cool about it is that when you get exposed to one modality that you really don't think is going to work, 
and there's right. just some impact, all of a sudden it's like a snowball, right? You can kind of keep dipping your your toe in these little pools, if you will, um, and seeing what works. And that's that's pretty cool. I'm still always unabashedly skeptical though. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's my clinical background or what the problem is, but you'd think I'd just try anything at this point. But no, I want to see some research and I want to hear other evidence and I want to try it a few times and see my experience before I'll even let anybody know that I'm doing it. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly opened the doorway for that for me. Sounds like healthy skepticism. I hope so. I hope yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, sometimes skepticism is anything but healthy. And so, you know, you you want to you want to make sure you're achieving that balance and not just being a jerk. Absolutely. When I say you, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you. Okay. Yeah. So take us to your your next cancer diagnosis. So you got through the pneumonia and mm -hmm. you started rebuilding your immune system, your health, I would imagine, or right, right. Yeah. And just feeling wonderful. Uh feeling very healthy. Uh, they said the CLL numbers were down so far that they would consider it in remission. But the current understanding in Western medicine of CLL is that you never get rid of it. It's always there. Uh, but it just, my numbers were extremely healthy and I didn't really feel any uh, lingering effects of it. Uh, but I feel like I'd, I'd learned the lesson. And so I continued the practices of eating well, getting enough sleep, um, and, and just taking better self-care. And uh, life was good. Uh, I'd written a book um, during that time, my first book, and I was starting to do well. And I was going to colleges and high schools, and uh, it was on um, acquaintance rape. And I'd used the four FBI profiles that had never been done. Never, I, I felt like if if the FBI had four fairly well-proven profiles of acquaintance rapists, why don't girls know these? And I couldn't find any information that did, so I created that, and uh, I was doing really well. And then Mary got sick and died, and the subject matter was so heavy. I mean, I, I couldn't read the paper, much less talk to girls about being raped by old boyfriends or coaches or ministers. Uh, so I just dropped everything and kind of dropped out of life. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really a difficult time. And the, the ironic thing is I was considered a grief expert in the Midwest. I led many seminars and written a lot of magazine articles on grief and what I'd seen happen. Uh, with my clients as they were grieving. But I didn't really have any personal experience. And I didn't know how devastating it was. As a matter of fact, it was so devastating that I called up a couple of my clients and asked, uh, I apologize, I asked for forgiveness. I'm like, man, when I was working with you, I did this and that. I just didn't know. And they were real gracious. And they said, Dean, you were helpful. You did your best. We knew you didn't know. Uh, but I, I was embarrassed at, at some of the things I had said and done because I simply didn't know how hard facing a tragedy like that would be. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so Kansas without the cute little Kansas girl, um, uh, just, I, I couldn't abide by it. Plus 30 years of memories in this tiny little place, every brick, every stone, every tree had a memory. It was just like being in an overwhelming sensory tank where I, I couldn't get away from her or have a moment's peace. And, and, and just everybody knew and every place I'd go, they'd either ask me how I was doing. Well, I'm like, how do you think I'm doing? Um, or give me that sad look. And I'm like, I don't look at me like that. And so I just, I thought, you know, I've, I've been homesick for Oregon for 30 years. I'm going to move back. And so that's what I did. Thinking, being close to my family, whom I love, uh, and being out in Oregon, I'd start this wonderful life. Not knowing that the last thing I had was this thriving practice and a passion for helping people as part of my identity, I, I didn't realize I was giving up the last, I was giving up all my adult friends and the last part of my adult identity. And so I got here renting for the first time in 30 years, this dark little duplex. And uh, I saw my family weekly, but you know, they're family, they're busy and they weren't going through it. And all of a sudden I had, days where I had nothing to do. And boy, that's when I really spiraled into despair. Yeah, so uh, 2011, the leukemia came back with vengeance and brought with it lymphoma this time, which is usually pretty typical for CLL. The lymphoma was even more aggressive than the leukemia. Uh, I started losing weight. Uh, when Mary died, I think it was 220, 225. I'm 6'1", 6'1 uh, By August of 2013, I was down to 152 pounds. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of Part of that, weight. though, is I almost died again. Um, before we moved back, I took my daughter down to a real beautiful lake in Arkansas, and I thought I'd show her how her dad's still strong by swimming across the lake and back, not knowing I was swimming through blue-green algae. And that blue-green algae went up my nose. And two days later, I passed out, woke up. I was in a coma for uh, 38 hours or two days I with viral meningitis. I woke up 60 pounds lighter. Uh, they told me that I almost didn't make it several times. And then this was the five days of hell. They said, well, we don't know if you've got blue-green algae uh, can either give you viral or herpetic uh, meningitis. If it's viral, you'll get better. If it's herpetic, it will continue to eat away your brain and you'll lose all your memory. And so you'll only end up with a 10 second memory. And I thought, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got no energy. I've got just this excruciating headache. I've lost all this weight. I've got lesions all over my body, uh, just big scabs and blisters everywhere. And I think I could have handled that, but then having to wait, I, they had to send the lab out to California, and then California had to send it back 
So I had to wait five days to find out if I'm going to be 10 second Tommy or not. And, and knowing that I, I felt like I'd lost everything. Uh, and now I'm going to possibly lose my mind. Uh, the last thing I had left, it was just overwhelming. That was the low point. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's quite a story. Now, was that after the lymphoma? Uh, yeah, I had, okay, lymph so. I was, I already had lymphoma. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. and then this happened. Okay. This happened, uh, July of 2012. Okay. And so we know you're not 10 second Tommy. Thank God. Yes. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> it was, it was right? viral, thankfully. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, but it took me six months, uh, to come back. Uh, there were days and days and day weeks where I had to use hiking poles uh, just to get up and walk around the house. And then I started pushing myself to go to the local track and use again that endurance athlete just to get one lap around and every day trying to do a little more. It, it just took forever. Yeah. Yeah. So with that six months of, of recovering from that, but also dealing with the, with the lymphoma, what are the things that you did? Like, you know, what are the healing factors that you feel like really helped you and, you know, then take us forward into the lymphoma story? Yeah, that's where I started spending more time in nature. Uh, this happened right as I was moving to Oregon or trying to decide to move to Oregon. And at that point, I didn't want my daughter, my daughter was showing a lot of anxiety and uh, mothering. I, and she was 18. She had, uh, you know, Mary died uh, October of her senior year in high school. And so you got this sweet little girl that um, has lost so much. And then she's trying to take care of me and, and be my mother. And so that's one of the reasons I decided to pull the plug and come back to Oregon. And uh, my parents had several places uh, they'd uh, purchased in the 80s uh, when the fishermen all went bankrupt. And uh, they'd still had one little cottage on the beach. And so I went and spent a lot of time there and just laid on the beach. And that's the first, that accelerated, I believe, um, my ability to, uh, to heal from the viral meningitis. And it showed me how healing nature can be. And so that's when I really started reading about this new field called eco-psychology or ecotherapy. And it's this study of uh, healing the mind and body in wild places. Looking for a thoughtful, heartfelt gift for someone with cancer? The Radical Remission Project has partnered with woman-led small business Rest and Heal to create lovely care packages for you to send. They feature the Radical Remission and Radical Hope books alongside natural wellness products, all of which are non-toxic and sourced from women-owned, black-owned, and New York State businesses. We know our community is passionate about spreading the radical remission healing factors, and these care packages are a great way to get knowledge into the hands of those who need it most. 
visit restandheal.com forward slash shop to purchase or learn more. That's restandheal.com forward slash shop. If you would like to learn more about the healing factors, join a Radical Remission workshop to learn how to implement them into your life. You will learn how lifestyle choices such as diet change, increasing positive emotions, empowerment, and more can boost your immune system in scientifically proven ways. Our workshops follow a unique interactive format that encourages sharing and social support. You will create a self-designed one-week, one-month, and six-month action plan that you can begin to implement right away. For many, a Radical Remission workshop is the first step in finding a like-minded, uplifting, healing community. The 10 factors of Radical Remission can be used safely by anyone on any healing journey, as well as for prevention. These 10 factors will aid you in improving your immune function and have helped many people overcome cancer or other chronic diseases. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find virtual and in-person workshops and other events. Yeah, so um, I know from a previous part of uh, stories we have heard from you in the past um, that you have some pretty wild uh, healing modalities from nature, if you'd like to share a little bit about your um, experience in the river and then maybe in the woods. Sure. Uh, I knew August of 2013 that I needed to do something, and I had helped so many people come back to life from years of depression or anxiety using Victor Frankl's uh, work where he found that purpose is pivotal, especially if you're passionate about something and so passionate, it's even more important than what you're suffering. And uh, as crazy as it may seem to make a very long story very short, I became very passionate about becoming the first person to swim the entire length of uh, Oregon's longest river, the Willamette, in order as an active cancer patient to inspire other cancer patients to refuse to give up simply because they've received a diagnosis. That was the whole plan. I'd never heard of cold water immersion and how that uh, cold water or hypothermic states boost the immune system. I'd heard only about earth vibrational frequencies and how they change the body and, uh, switch on the mitochondria, but I always thought that was kind of hippy-dippy vibrational frequency stuff, you know, because out here in the late 60s, I spent a lot of time hanging around the flower children, and they were always talking about vibes, um, and so anytime I heard vibrational, I, I, I turned off not knowing it's an actual scientific thing, um, so it took me 22 days to swim 187 miles, and First 16 days, we're in 42 to 45 degree water. And so I was constantly in a hypothermic state. I'd have to get out about every 30 or 45 minutes and do jumping jacks and run in place to warm my body up because I would go in what's called thrombosis or deep core throttle where my internal organs would bang against my rib cage. And that's a sign you're getting a little too cold. That was the hardest part of that swim. 
I had no idea that was really a healing factor. I didn't know that that was accidentally happening to me. Plus, one of the things I started to notice is when I got in the river June 3rd, almost uh, nine years ago yesterday, uh, or two days ago, <clears throat> I couldn't say Mary's name without crying. Um, I couldn't talk about her. I couldn't talk about how much I loved her. Couldn't tell how funny she was. I couldn't say anything about her. Um, when I got out <clears throat> um, June 27th, uh, we were having a big celebration. And uh, I was telling funny stories about her because she was hilarious. And everybody was shocked. And I said, what? And they're like, you haven't talked about her for four years. You couldn't even say her name. And I didn't know what had happened, but there's something I've since learned called the blue mind. And that is when you're in, on, around, or by water, uh, your brain within about two minutes hits a flow state, a nice meditative, relaxing state. And they're now using water as a treatment of choice for combat veterans and people with PTSD. Well, I was literally flowing with water for 22 days, almost all day long. Uh, so it was really good for my mind, too. And then the first blood test I took after down at University of California, San Diego, with the world's number three uh, researcher at the time, Juan Ario Castro, uh, showed that the leukemia was all but gone. Yeah. And then the mm -hmm. second... He said, if I hadn't diagnosed you myself, Dean, I would have thought you'd been misdiagnosed. He said, because in chronic lymphocytic leukemia world, it's never supposed to go away. It's just a fact it doesn't, and I can't find any of yours. And wow, so, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was thrilling. Yeah, and so that, that really led me to believe in the power of nature as healer. And you hadn't done any conventional treatment at that point for the no, seal, right? We had it planned for right after my swim, but I was feeling so good and doing so well that um, he decided I didn't need chemo radiation. But then I went down uh, March and my lymphoma had gotten so bad. This was March of 2015 now. My lymphoma had become so aggressive. Even though the leukemia was gone, the lymphoma was just really swelling and, and uh, kind of ravaging my body. He wanted to do chemo and radiation then. And I had read so much about the Japanese and the research on forest bathing or yorin Shinrin Yoku Show. Shin. I, I, forest. We know forest baby. Yeah. Japanese, yeah. any Japanese person anywhere. I apologize. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the things I'd read that really struck me is uh, Dr. King Lee from Nippon University had found that one to two hours in a conifer forest. Uh, you're breathing in something, a chemical compound that's emitted from those conifers called phytoncides. And those phytoncides, if you're around and breathing those in for an hour or two, they boost your NK uh, or natural killer cells, the cancer killing cells, 250 times for two weeks. And so I thought, well, 
I'm not a scientist, but if you do the math, if I go out every week for 24 hours and they boost it for two weeks, maybe this thing would become exponential. So I started that May of 2015, going out every night after work. I'd headlamp in, um, which sometimes was a little scary because the Mount Hood Wilderness has a lot of mountain lions and they're nocturnal hunters. So sometimes I felt like this was an eat at Joe's sign. Um, but, you know, you do what you got to do. And uh, the thing for me that was exceptionally healing was being raised in the era that I was, even though I cried all the time, I never really gave myself permission to. Well, out there in the forest, way off the path where nobody could find me or hear me, it's just me in the trees. I just let myself let it all out. And I did so every week. And I then would get in one of the glacier fed streams the next morning and I would feel reborn each week. I would just feel so much better. And that's when the grief and the heartache and everything really started to change. And by March of 2016, my lymphoma was gone and we didn't need to do chemo or radiation for that either, uh, which I had planned to. And I'm not against, I think that's really important for people to know. I'm not against traditional treatment. I was just fortunate enough not to have to have it. Yeah, one would say that you were empowered in the sense that you did the research um, to really think outside the box. And what a beautiful lesson for all of us to, to observe through your eyes, the power of healing naturally um, in that environment, you know, the environmental um, impact can really be obviously very significant. Yeah, I think it's the future of medicine. I really do. I think also if anybody can learn anything from my story, it's to trust your gut and to not let fear take you out of the driver's seat of your life. I fired my first two oncologists uh, because I had watched my dad go through cancer and his treatment and things being done that he didn't even feel comfortable with, but he didn't feel like he could stand up to his doctor. And I had done therapy with so many doctors as clients, it kind of took them off a pedestal for me uh, because there were a lot of times I'd listen to their lives or what they'd say to their wives. And I'd think, hmm, wow, I'd never do that. And so it, it made them very human to me. And so uh, I went into my first oncologist and I said, hey, I, I want you to understand there's no disrespect intended whatsoever, but uh, I'm the boss of my body. You are going to be my expert consultant, but you are not my boss. I am, uh, you are on my team. I'm the captain. You're my star player or co-captain. And he was furious. He just slammed down. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. He slammed down his clipboard and said, well, that's not how I work. I said, well, I, again, wasn't trying to be disrespectful. I just telling you my approach and what I need from you. He's like, I can't do that. I said, okay, refer me. And so then the next guy came in a couple of days later and he was really nice, but he said, nope, that's not how I work. And I said, okay, refer me. And then the next guy came in and he was just one of the kindest people I ever met. And he was on board 
and was very helpful, super supportive. And I think you've got to, this is so scary. You've got to have that kind of support. I believe, and maybe it's just me, I don't think so, support emotionally from your oncologist as well, like you're working together. Yes. Yeah, yeah I couldn't agree more. Yeah, definitely. So Dean, how about a couple of the other factors, just real quick? Sure. Did you use spirituality or intuition to help you through your healing? I, I think if you really read between the lines in my story, intuition is probably the thing I use the most. I, I've been looking at the factors, thinking about this uh, conversation and thinking, what factor did I use the most? And I think it was mostly intuition. Mm -hmm. um, spirituality has been the biggest part of my life. Um, my parents were very spiritual, even though they were Christians. <laughs> um, you don't meet a lot of the radical right that are very loving, but they actually were. So I was raised in a very, very Christian household. I don't really espouse to that, um, but <clears throat> I've always had a deep faith. Uh, even though I'm not particularly religious, I'm what's called a seeker. Um, I've got my first degrees in philosophy and religion, if that tells you anything. Yeah. But then I found as at 23, nobody wanted to hire a 23-year-old philosopher. So I had to go back for additional <laughs> degrees. Um, but that's that's a very vital part of it. And for me, meditation, I've meditated every day since October of 2000. And I was doing it intermittently from the time I was 18. Um, uh, I really got into it when I was 20, but a professor told me I was becoming addicted to it and I better stop. <laughs> and so I believed him. And so I stopped for a year, but then did it secretly after that. Um, so meditation's always been a real big thing. And then uh, one of the things that was pivotal for me, a very big help, is there's a lady named Kelly Howell. Uh, she does really excellent guided meditations. And I found her in uh, about 2003, way before I ever had leukemia lymphoma the first time. And she introduced me to a field called neuroacoustics. It's the scientific study of the therapeutic use of sound. And she uses, uh, uh, like most really good guided meditation, she uses uh, hypnotic induction techniques and certain uh, vibrational frequencies in music and rhythm to help really take you down to a deep state. And you can find her stuff for free on YouTube. And so I would, <clears throat> when I had leukemia, especially when I was so sick, really all through it. But uh, when I had leukemia, and then from 2013, when I was really making a full court press on becoming well again, I would listen to her 30 minute guided meditation two and three times a day. Mm. Yeah, so spirituality was really important to me. Yeah, I could see uh, very, very clearly through all of your stories, just hearing all of the different factors popping up, you know, just you are truly the definition of a radical remission survivor. And um, what an inspiration to be able to share your story. And obviously, we'll, we'll share a minute in a minute, um, how you have 
continue to do that um, for your own channels. But I do have one question uh, sure. before we wrap up, and that would be, if you had to offer one piece of advice to someone who is um, on a healing journey or new to a, a diagnosis um, in cancer, what do you think would be your overarching, like what's your one really key piece of advice? This is going to sound so cheesy and like it was staged. <laughs> but uh, just for you listeners, the ladies didn't know I was going to say this, <laughs> but it's as honest an answer as I can give. Uh, I can't tell you how many hundreds, literally in the hundreds of DMs I've written. Have you read Kelly uh, Turner's book, Radical Remission or Radical Hope? Uh, that would be where I'd encourage people to start. Uh, because I can tell them, hey, I did X, Y, and Z, but it's not black and white or concrete enough. And Kelly did such a great job at identifying the factors, uh, sharing the science and stories behind those factors uh, that, um, I mean, the first time I saw Kelly and her work was on that documentary Heal on Netflix in 2018. And it brought both my wife and I to tears. Um, for the listeners, I thought I'd never uh, fall in love again because um, I'd had a good run. But then this beautiful uh, personal trainer yoga instructor that's super kind acted interested. So who am I <laughs> to say no to that? And it's just been wonderful. We've just had this beautiful love life that's very different than my first one but uh, just so satisfying. But when they started detailing each one of the nine radical remission factors, it brought us to tears because intuitively, again, there's the intuition, I had done all nine. Yeah. And so anytime anybody asks me, oh, I've got cancer, what do I do? I, I say, you got to start with Kelly's book. Yeah, that's that's really great. And you know, it's funny when I asked the question, I absolutely was not looking for that answer. <laughs> so, I know. But you're right. I knew you really... weren't. But I thought, oh my gosh, listeners are going to think this is such a setup. Right. But right. not at all. Not yeah, at all. and it is true. I mean, it's it really is a great roadmap if you don't know where to begin, or if you're at a plateau, or you don't know really where to go. Radical Remission and Radical Hope are such good books that. I can't tell you that oh, times people have said they carry it around with them. Like it's like a security blanket or something. Um, right. So I wouldn't have had to bash around so much uh, in my healing journey if I would have had it. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, Dean, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share that you didn't get a chance to, to say today before we end? Not much other than it's just been uh, a wonderful chance to have a, a beautiful conversation. So thank you. I guess the only other thing I'd say is uh, don't try to do this on your own um, and uh, read my book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I just cure. come out with a book about my Willamette journey and we're really excited about it uh, because we used something uh, called threaded conversation or threaded interview, where we talked to everybody in the team and then used that as the narrative. And so it, it comes across kind of like a documentary and people have said that it, it makes it much more fun to read. And for me, I like it because as much as it may seem I like to talk about myself, 
Um, that's not really who I am. Uh, and so it shows that in this book, even though I was the swimmer, we were all on this adventure having very different at times adventures ourselves. And it, it's just a real great metaphor for life, I think. Yeah. Plus, it will show the power of purpose and some of the healing factors uh, in real life, real time with a real story. Tell us where people can get in touch with you. Yeah, we've just reconfigured my website, given it a whole new name and a brush up to make it more current. Uh, current. It's called uh, the wildcureway.com. And I've already got several retreats lined up, uh, but also going to start doing personal intensives, which I did a few times uh, with couples in Sedona and different places in the early 2000s, and now hoping to do that full time. Uh, coaching cancer and non-cancer folks, anybody that uh, wants to get better quickly, because I think the way we do coaching and therapy right now is archaic and nearly obsolete. A lot of people don't know it, but sitting is the second most powerless position you can assume with the human body. And yet we sit people down and then talk about their problems. And so instinctively, they feel even more powerless at times. And so I think we need to get people up and walking. And then with my experience in nature, uh, it's such a beautiful assist in the healing process. I think it's greatly underused. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much, Dean. It's been such yeah. a pleasure today. Well, it's been a, a real pleasure for me, and especially to be able to talk to you too, um, which I greatly respect and admire. So thank you for giving me the chance. Absolutely. Thank you. The feeling is mutual, and we look forward to hearing what comes next for you. <laughs> Thanks. Can't wait. And thank you for listening to the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Once again, I'm Kelly A. Turner, PhD, cancer researcher and founder of the Radical Mission Project. If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission Project or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission healing factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission health coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit radicalremission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing, would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease, or perhaps even no evidence of disease, you can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and CAP Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla Mans Giroux. Produced by Ryan Giroux. Music by Batchbug. 
follow the stories that heal wherever you get your podcasts.